Two weeks ago, United Airlines got hit with a slew of horrible headlines after airline security forcibly removed a passenger from a flight after he was seated and refused to obey airline orders to vacate the plane. The man, Dr. David Dow, alleges that security broke his nose and knocked out his teeth, among other injuries. The story led to a bevy of narratives about supposed anti-Asian discrimination on airlines, as well as general anger at the airline industry. Well, on Monday, a lawyer named Tom Demetrio announced on NBC's Today that a female passenger on American Airlines had contacted him about suing the airline. What happened? A video shows the woman crying and carrying her baby, as well as another passenger talking to a flight attendant. The woman claims a flight attendant hit her with a stroller while taking it away from her, nearly hitting her kid, too. American Airlines, seeing what had happened to United, immediately took action to suspend the flight attendant in question and apologized for, quote, the pain we have caused this passenger and her family and to any other customers affected by the incident. According to a Reddit commenter who says he saw the incident, quote, the Argentinian lady and her two children were in the mid to back of the plane. She was somehow able to get her stroller on board and back to near her seat. Since I was near the front, I cannot know what happened. If she tried to put the stroller in the overhead bin or what. The flight attendant told her she could not have the stroller on the plane and he needs to take it. She refused to let him take it and was to the near point of shouting. The flight attendant shouted f up for security very soon on, escalating the situation more. The flight attendant and the woman started making their way to the front of the plane. I forgot who had the stroller at this point. She had her two kids. She shouted something about being an Argentinian woman and yada yada. It was at this point where things escalated a bit more. The flight attendant and Argentinian woman were at the front of the plane in the crew area next to the front door of the plane. She was hanging onto the stroller, refusing to let go. The flight attendant was trying to remove it from the plane. Both were here at fault, in my opinion. The flight attendant's tone was overly aggressive. The woman was refusing to let it go and made an aggressive move, grabbing the flight attendant, which she should not have done. This angered him. He responded by jerking the stroller harder and knocking the Argentinian woman in the head and nearly missing her kids. The flight attendant should not have been so aggressive and should have been aware of the kids. Unquote. So... Here's the problem. What we now have is an attempt to target one of the most unpopular industries in the country. Everyone hates the airlines, the same way most Americans hate their insurance company. Sure, we need the airlines, but we despise them because they control how we fly, they charge us too much, they jack us around, they force us to pay for checked baggage and the like. We have to deal with pissy flight attendants and idiot TSA agents and airlines that don't seem to care very much about canceling or delaying our flights. And so now individuals see a ripe target. Here is the truth. David Dow should have gotten off the plane. They had the legal right to remove him from the plane. Should they have changed their process for encouraging people to leave? Of course. But as Mike Rowe rightly said, quote, I don't want to fly across the country in a steel tube filled with people who get to decide which rules they will follow and which they will ignore. I've been on too many flights with too many angry people to worry about the specific circumstances of their outrage or the details of why they took it upon themselves to ignore a direct command. A plane is not a democracy. The main cabin is no place to organize a sit-in. The main cabin is a place to follow orders, unquote. The same holds true for this woman on the American Airlines flight. I have two kids under the age of four. We always travel with a double stroller. We have never attempted to put it on the plane, and if we did so and were asked to check the stroller instead, we would obey the command. Apparently, this woman didn't, then allegedly got rowdy before being clocked with the stroller in stupid fashion by a flight attendant. How is this the sort of behavior we'd like to promulgate as a society? We're now incentivizing every person on every plane to argue with every annoyance and then sue based on the reaction from the airline. Those costs will then be passed on to other consumers. Enough. We've had politics dominated by hatred for particular industries for years now. We've already destroyed the health and insurance industry because we hate it, but we need it. Now we'll target the airlines. Here's an idea. If you don't like how an airline acts, choose a different airline. Otherwise, we'll ruin all of the airlines in a fit of peak. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> 
Okay, we have tons to get to today. We're going to be having on a guest who thinks that cultural appropriation is completely horrible in just a little while. Plus, I want to go through what Trump promised during his first 100 days and what he's actually done. We're going to go through this in purely factual fashion, see what he has fulfilled and what he has not fulfilled. But first... I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Texture.com. So if you are addicted to information as I am, if you love reading as I do, you need to go to Texture.com slash Ben and download their app. What do they do? Well, they make it possible for you to access 200 plus magazines full of in-depth interviews and stories all in the Texture app right there on your tablet or your phone. And you can do all of that for a really low price Every single month. It's $9.99 a month. You get over 200 magazines. And these are top-level magazines. We're not talking about magazines you've never heard of. We're talking about things like Popular Science and and In Style and Harper's Bazaar and GQ and, and Sports Illustrated. You know, all these all these magazines that you probably subscribe to on your own. I'm looking at a list of them, and it's a huge list. All of these magazines are available to you for one low monthly price, and you have access to all of them. It was selected as one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps, as well it should have been. You can start your free trial right now and download the Texture app. My wife uses it for Reader's Digest. I use it for Sports Illustrated. Texture.com. Slash Ben. You get 14 days free trial to check it out. It's entirely digital. Of course, it is only $9.99 a month, and that's less than the cost of many of these just on their own. Like, if you were just to get a, a subscription to one of these magazines, it would probably cost more than $9.99 a month for some of these magazines. So get that, you get 200 magazines plus. So it's just fantastic stuff. Time, The Atlantic, Newsweek, doesn't matter. And the nice thing is, it doesn't matter if you don't like the whole magazine. You're, you're subscribed to so many of them, you can pick and choose what it is that you want to read. If you love reading, if you love information, if you're an information junkie as I am, then texture.com slash Ben is the place to be. Okay, so before we launch into the news of the day, I want to talk about a piece of news that's not of the day. It's of 102 years ago. I want to pay tribute to the Armenian Genocide. So the Armenian Genocide began 102 years ago, April 24th, 1915. People don't know that much about the Armenian Genocide because it hasn't had as much publicity as the Holocaust because it wasn't as mechanized as the Holocaust. But up to 1.5 million Armenians were murdered by the Turkish Islamist regime. They're called the Young Turks. They took the place of the Ottoman Empire. They were supposed to be reasonable and nationalist. And instead, it turned out that they were Islamic extremists. And they decided on the murder of literally hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children who are Armenian uh, in Turkey. And it was, I mean, the, the stories, the pictures are just horrific. I mean, you're talking about mass killings. You're talking about mass starvation, forced death marches. Uh, there's famous news coverage of them putting boats filled with women and children offshore into the sea and then just deliberately sinking them to kill everybody aboard. Uh, horrific. Uh, the, the excuse that was used by the regime at the time is that these terrible Armenians who were Christian uh, were going to be allied against the central powers in World War I and they wanted to stop that. Uh, still, today, the current Islamist dictator of Turkey refuses to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. In 2010, Erdogan, who is that dictator, he openly warned he could throw 100,000 Armenian immigrants out of Turkey if they kept talking about the Armenian genocide uh, because they were undermining the legitimacy of Turkish rule. There was one guy who took the Armenian genocide particularly seriously. That person was Adolf Hitler. In 1939, when he was dictator of Germany, obviously, he told Nazi officers right before they were about to invade Poland, quote, kill without mercy. He said, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians? The Germans were obviously well aware of the annihilation of the Armenians because they were allied with the, the Turkish Empire, with the Ottoman Empire in World War I. Rabbi Shmuley Boteach has pointed out that Hitler's confidants learned from Turkey's genocidal playbook. His lead political advisor, Hitler's, was a guy named Max Erwin von Schubner Richter, who's a young German consular officer uh, in Turkey, uh, and he had seen all of this happen. The Germans were well aware of what had happened during the Armenian genocide. Again, the bottom line is that most genocides are thrown off as some sort of political just a political tool, and the world tends to ignore it. Most of the world ignored the Armenian genocide. Most of the world still ignores the Armenian genocide. I thought it would be 
you know, not only worthwhile to pay tribute to it, it's a reminder that when we watch genocides happening across the world against Christians, particularly in the Middle East today, the legacy of this is not over. When you ignore Islamic extremism, genocide becomes far easier, whether it's genocide against Yazidis in Iraq or whether it's genocide against Christians in Syria. Uh, bottom line is that, that Christians are still under attack in the Middle East by the same people who were participating in this a century ago. Okay, so I now want to talk about Trump's first 100 days. So, Trump made a lot of promises about what he was going to do in his first 100 days. He had a, an entire program uh, that he suggested was going to be his, his agreement with America. Uh, it was a 100-day plan to restore prosperity to our economy, security to our communities, and honesty to our government. And you can see an image of what he had tweeted out. He put out this contract with the American voter that was supposed to be like Newt Gingrich's contract with America. And it had, I think, 28 separate promises. And we'll go through those promises and see what he's fulfilled. Now, Let's be real about this. The 100-day standard is always sort of silly. It was, it was established by historians in the aftermath of FDR using his first 100 days to cram through whatever he wanted. So when Trump says that it's silly, he's right. But it was Trump himself who decided to hold by this and make all these big promises because the big promise underlying everything Trump did in the election cycle was that Donald Trump was going to change the way government worked. He was going to come in, cut the Gordian knot. Everything was going to be quick and easy and fast, and that's not the way that government works. You know, Chuck Todd asked Ryan Priebus about this because Trump had been asked about the 100 days thing, and Trump had said, well, I don't know who decided on this. Somebody decided on this, meaning somebody decided on this program. So it was Bob the intern, apparently, who came up with this contract with the American voter. Um, but here's Chuck Todd querying Ryan Priebus over it, and Ryan Priebus trying to run from it. All of them were supposed to be legislative uh, action that was announced, not necessarily the expectation that any of it would be passed, but only one of those legislative priorities is even come close to a vote, health care. Why does he say it's a ridiculous standard and yet promise all this action in, before day 100? All right. And, uh, and Priebus doesn't have a great answer for that. Jonathan Carl over at ABC News is, of course, jumping on the 100-day standard to say that Trump has fallen short. By the standards that he set for himself during the campaign, there is no question that he has fallen dramatically short in the first 100 days. Just take a look at this. Back in October, he offered what he called a contract with the American voter. This is 10 specific promises, 10 pieces of legislation that he promised to introduce and, quote, fight for their passage within the first 100 days of my administration. Well, George, only one of those has even been introduced. Okay, and so that stop is it there. This is not fully fair. So if you look at Trump's 100-day promises, they're focusing on the legislative portion of it, right? There's the 100-day promises again. So this is the first page. The second page is the one where he hasn't done so well, right? So the second page has all of these legislative priorities. He pledges that he's going to introduce these acts. Middle-class tax relief and simplification, no. And the Offshoring Act, which was supposed to be a tariff act, no. American Energy and Infrastructure Act, no. School Choice and Education Opportunity Act, no. Repeal and Replace Obamacare Act, he tried, it failed. Affordable Child Care and Elder Care Act, no. And Illegal Immigration Act, no. Restoring Community Safety Act, no. Restoring National Security Act, no. Clean Up Corruption in Washington Act, no. So that, that page, that's right. Those are all his supposed legislative priorities, and this highlights the difference. I'll show you in a second. This highlights the difference between where Trump has been effective and where he has not been effective. He has not been effective at changing how government works, and this is why he is not Reagan. So Reagan, in his first 100 days, pursued some executive actions, but 
Reagan's big contribution was to spend his first 100 days on the bully pulpit, ripping Democrats down. Remember, he had a Democratic majority in the House, ripping Democrats down for their failure to pass some sort of tax reform, and he was successful in shifting the debate. Trump has not really shifted the debate on anything, which is why he's been wildly unsuccessful on the legislative front, even though, unlike Reagan, he actually has a Republican Congress and a Republican Senate. Here's where he has fulfilled his promises. That first page. Let's show that first page again. Okay, so the first page, he has a bunch of promises here. So... He, he pledged he was going to clean up government. So he said he was going to propose a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all members of Congress. No, he didn't do that. A hiring freeze on federal employees. Yes, he lifted it later, but yes. Third, a requirement that for every new federal regulation, two existing regulations would be eliminated. Yes, he fulfilled that. A five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service. Yes, he fulfilled that. A lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Yes, but sort of undercut by the fact that Mike Flynn, who is his national security advisor, is now registered as a foreign agent. Sixth, a complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American elections. No, he hasn't done that yet. So that first section here, you can see it here on the left side of your screen. There are six promises that he made, and he kept four of them. Okay, not bad. On protecting American workers, he announced that he was going to renegotiate NAFTA or withdraw from the deal. He has announced that. He, would, he said he was going to announce withdrawal from TPP. Yes. He said that he was going to direct his secretary of the Treasury to label China a currency manipulator. No, and not only that, he said he was never going to do that now because they're not manipulating the currency. He said he was going to direct the Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Representative to identify foreign trading abuses. Yes. He was going to lift restrictions on generation of shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. Yes. Lift the Keystone Pipeline ban. Yes. And cancel billions to the U.N. climate change programs. Yes. So in this section, he has kept... One, two, three, there, there are seven promises here, and he has kept six of them. So, quite good, right? And then there are his promises on the Constitution. He said he was going to cancel every unconstitutional executive action memo and order issued by Obama. No, particularly, this is not true with regard to the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals, DACA. Uh, second, he said he was going to select a replacement for Scalia. Yes, in spades with, uh, with Judge Gorsuch. Third, cancel all federal funding to sanctuary cities. He has said he's going to do this, and he's made that threat. Fourth, begin removing 2 million criminal illegal immigrants. Yes, he's pursuing that. And suspending immigration from terror-prone countries. He's tried to do that, but obviously he's failed in that because of the, the courts attempting to block that. So what has he done there? So there were five promises there, and he has kept four of them, essentially. So in other words, everything that he said he could do that was kind of the smaller things through executive action, he's done all of that. When it comes to legislative efforts, he has not done that. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the big things that presidents do are all legislative. Try to recall, the, the president really does big things in a couple of ways. One is he shifts the tone and tenor of the political debate. So Barack Obama shifted the entire tone and tenor of the American political debate onto race, onto onto gender, onto polarization of, of the American system. And he did that very successfully. Also, his big accomplishments were legislative, except for DACA, which, oh, which Trump is not moving off of. So his big legislative accomplishment, of course, is Obamacare. He also came up with sequestration, which cut the military dramatically. All of his big accomplishments were legislative. This is true for every president. Executive orders do not do that much. Okay, Executive orders generally, if they're properly used, cannot do that much because the president doesn't have all that much power. So while everybody is saying that Trump kept a lot of these promises, that's true. Good for him. But when it comes to what the president actually does, his role of leadership Trump is a mixed bag. He has not done anything on the legislative side. He's supposed to roll out his tax plan this week. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully it goes better than repeal and replace. He had said he was going to do repeal and replace this week again. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. That probably gets kicked down the road. Maybe Trump pulls out of this tailspin, but he has not used the bully pulpit in order to promulgate his agenda, and you can see that. So 
for example, you know, Donald Trump is still maintaining that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. There's no evidence that Mexico is going to pay for this wall. Right. He said eventually, but at a later date, so we can get started early. Mexico will be paying in some form for the badly needed border wall. So bottom line, he hedges three times in one tweet about one of his key campaign promises eventually, but at a later date in some form. Right. So it's a lot of hedging about a key campaign promise. His homeland security chief, you know, Trump said it's going to be so easy to stop terrorism. It's not easy to stop terrorism. Trump never should have made that promise. Here's his homeland security chief, this is General John Kelly, talking about how no, we really don't know what we can do here. There's so many aspects of this terrorist thing. Obviously, you get the homegrown terrorists. I don't know how to stop that. I don't know how to detect that. Okay, so again, promise that Trump made that he's not going to be able to fulfill because there's no way to fulfill that promise. Jeff Sessions, the, the attorney general, was asked about deporting Dreamers, another big Obama, uh, another big Trump initiative, this idea we're going to revoke DACA and deport the Dreamers. No, not so much. The president did say, as I said this week to the Associated Press, that the dreamers should rest easy. He's not going after the dreamers. That's his policy. He said, is it the policy of the Justice Department? That the Homeland Security has primary jurisdiction there. Their first and strongest priority, no doubt about it, is uh, the criminal element that we have in our country that have come here illegally. So they're focusing primarily on that. And uh, there's no doubt the president has sympathy uh, for young people who were brought here at early ages. So they can rest easy? Well, uh, we'll see. Uh, I believe that uh, everyone that enters the country unlawfully is subject to being deported. However, uh, we've got, we don't have the ability to um, round mixed up messages. every... Bottom line is mixed messages from Jeff Sessions. Again, this is stuff that should be solved on the legislative level, and Trump has not done what he needs to do on the legislative level yet. So on the executive level, I think Trump's done a lot of the right things on, in his first 100 days. But people who are declaring him a wild success after 100 days are not right, and people who are declaring him a wild failure after 100 days are not right. Bottom line is I don't think that he has shifted the debate in the same way that Reagan did. Uh, he looks more like Clinton in his, in his first term, right? So the first 100 days of Clinton was basically a bunch of mishmash. And even the New York Times said that it was a bunch of mishmash at the time. And then later he ended up swiveling to the right. You could very well see Trump do the same thing, swiveling to the left, trying to get Democrats to sign on to his legislative agenda. I want to stop here and say thank you to our friends over at zeal.com. So if you are interested in getting a massage uh, and they give great massages, zeal.com is the best place to do this. Fantastic service. So the way this works is you go to zeal, you download their app, you go to zeal.com, they check your ID to make sure you're not a creeper, and then you can get a massage at your house on demand. And they have a licensed masseuse who will come to your house, bring all the materials, they bring the table, they bring the music, they bring the oils, the whole thing. It is really a luxury experience. I've done it. My wife has done it. My father has done it. My sister has done it. My mother-in-law has done it. This is one of the services that we use a lot in the Shapiro clan, zeal.com. And if you use promo code Ben, you get $25 off your first massage and 20% off all massages, plus a free massage table and sheet set if you sign up for Zeal's massage membership. So you sign up for a membership card and you actually get one of those so you can just have it at your house, which is awesome. $25 off your first massage, 20% off all massages, zeal.com, promo code Ben. One of the things I've always said is that in life, you know, it's good to be rich, but it's better to feel rich. And this is one of those things where it just feels like a luxury, even though it's really affordable. It's less expensive than if you had to go wait for an appointment at your local spa. And uh, it's, it's just, it's a tremendous service. I can't recommend it highly enough. 
it, you, you're worried about your kids, you're stressed out, you need a massage, zeal.com is the place to go. Use that promo code, Ben. Again, it's, it got me in good with my mother-in-law. Like, I had one that, that I was getting for myself, and she was at the house. I was like, you take it. And, uh, and ever since, our relationship has been spectacular. So if you, want to, <laughs> if, if you want a great relationship with your mother-in-law or any other member of your family, then use this and get a gift for somebody. Zeal.com, promo code Ben, 25 bucks off your first massage, 20% off all massages, and that free massage table and sheet set if you get their massage membership. Okay, so the, the bottom line here is that the thing that Trump says that he is good at, the thing Trump thinks he is good at, which is the PR, is the thing that he's actually worst at. What he is best at is implementing a bunch of things that are inherent in the power of the presidency. He needs to get good at pushing his agenda. If he had discipline, he could be. I still hope he will be, but I think he, he is drawn by the bright lights, in, and that is not a great thing. So, you know, Donald Trump said that, you know, Sean Spicer, who has not been a particularly great press secretary, he should stick around. Why? Because he's getting ratings. He actually said this. He said that, that Spicer's not going anywhere because he gets ratings. The purpose of the presidency is not to gain attention. You're going to have attention if you're president of the United States. The purpose is to get things done. Mr. President, it's time to get things done. Okay, well, as we continue here on the Ben Shapiro Show, we're going to be talking with, some, you're going to want to subscribe for this, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk with uh, a person who is a professor of law and anthropology at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, uh, and uh, she has an AB from Harvard, and, uh, and she suggests that um, cultural appropriation is the worst thing in the world. So we're going to talk about cultural appropriation and why I think the entire terminology is really stupid uh, in just a second. But you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe for that. $8 a month gets you the subscription over at dailywire.com. If you subscribe annually, then you get a free copy of The Arroyo, fictional film set on the southern border, terrific movie by our very own Jeremy Boring about ranchers trying to protect their property from drug cartels trying to use that property as a thoroughfare for drugs and human trafficking. Uh, and you can go check it out over at dailywire.com right now, become an annual subscriber, or if you just want to listen later at iTunes or SoundCloud, uh, then go over to iTunes and hit that subscribe button. We always appreciate it. And make sure that you leave uh, a review. We always appreciate that as well, unless you're going to leave a bad review, in which case, you know, go screw yourself. But if you're actually going to leave a good review, then leave a good review. I appreciate it. Alrighty, so we'll continue in just a second. This is the largest conservative podcast in the nation. Alrighty, so for all the talk about Trump's first 100 days, the Democrats are still having trouble getting it together. The Democrats keep saying now that there's an open battle has now broken out over the leadership of the Democratic Party. So you got the Hillary wing of the Democratic Party and the Obama wing of the Democratic Party, and it seems like they're moving very strong in the Bernie Sanders direction. But Bernie, weirdly enough, has decided to moderate his stance. So in the last few days, Bernie Sanders has been saying things that make him sound more like a party leader than Tom Perez. So Tom Perez is the guy who was sort of the Clinton acolyte who's now been put in charge of the Democratic National Committee. And Tom Perez said that only pro-choicers should be allowed to, to be members of the Democratic Party. He came out and he said that this is not a pro-life party, so we are not going to, uh, we're, we're not really going to accept candidates who are pro-life, which is an amazing statement. He said, every Democrat, like every American, should support a woman's right to make her own choices about her body and her health. That is not negotiable and should not change city by city or state by state. Now, listen, I'm all in favor of parties having a line, but if they want to lose elections, this is a good way to do it. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders sounding a lot more like the leadership of the party than Tom Perez. Here is Bernie Sanders demonstrating that he actually is starting to think of himself as a leader of the Democratic Party is that uh, he is against abortion rights. And, and so there's a debate about cultural issues versus economic. How does the party sort all that out? I don't think there's much of a debate about that. Uh, I have a 100% lifetime pro-choice uh, voting record. Overwhelming majority of Democrats are pro-choice. 
I'm going to do everything that I can to see that the Republicans do not get away with their horrific effort to defund Planned Parenthood, which provides health care to two and a half million women. But if we are going to become a 50-state party, if you're going to go to Omaha, Nebraska, which has a Republican governor, two Republican senators, all Republican congresspeople, Republican legislature, you know what? And if in Omaha, five or 6,000 people come out to a rally, led by Jane Cleave, their new Democratic chairperson, who's doing a great job. And if you have a rally in which you have the labor movement and environmentalists and Native Americans uh, and the African-American community and the Latino community coming together saying, we want this guy to become our next mayor. Should I reject going there to Omaha? I don't think so. It was okay, a so great rally. Bernie Sanders sounding a lot more reasonable than Tom Perez, which is amazing. Nancy Pelosi, too. She's doing the same thing. But this is the sort of split that's going to arise in the Democratic Party because they abandoned their base long ago. Bernie Sanders still thinks that the base of the Democratic Party is those blue-collar workers in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that Trump just won in this last election cycle. Tom Perez thinks the base of the Democratic Party is the black and Hispanic community that Barack Obama drove out in record numbers in 2012. That debate is going to continue to characterize the Democratic Party for the foreseeable future. Well, joining us on the line right now, I want to welcome uh, a, a professor of law and anthropology at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Her name is, and I want to pronounce this correctly, Olufumileo Arewa. I think I got that, Arewa. I think I got that correctly. Um, did a, professor, uh, you know, I'm going to call you Professor Arewa. Thanks so much for joining the program. I hope I got that sort of close to correct. Thank you. It was close. Okay, I appreciate it. You know, like horseshoes <laughs> and hand grenades, close enough works. Okay, so so thank you for that. Um, so you, you wrote a column uh, recently at theconversation.com titled Cultural Appropriation When Borrowing Becomes Exploitation. And what you said in the column was that when patterns of borrowing fail to acknowledge their sources and compensate them, they can be categorized as cultural appropriation. This is particularly the case when cultural flows reflect, reinforce, or magnify inequalities. So forgive me if I think this language is, is slightly vague. When is cultural appropriation bad? Like, well, what makes cultural appropriation bad? Well, I want to stop, step back a minute and talk about borrowing, because I think the first part of the article that you cite, I talk about why borrowing is actually a good thing. Borrowing is pervasive in human culture. We all borrow from each other all the time. Um, we borrow in food. We borrow, if you look at how crops spread, language, religion, music, and other cultural elements, borrowing is a pervasive aspect of human society. So I think the first thing that's important to acknowledge is that borrowing is a norm, borrowing is natural, and borrowing should be something that we celebrate, because I think, most importantly, borrowing is a key source of innovation, whether it's Bach borrowing from Vivaldi, or whether I actually, I'm writing a book right now about um, the global dissemination of African-American music. And African-American music is a really good example of how hybrid sort of intermixed mashups of different cultural elements can create something that's innovative and new. So I want to start out by saying that borrowing is actually, in my view, a very good thing, because I think it's a key source of cultural innovation. I think when... You, you know, we hear a lot of discussion about cultural and cultural appropriation today, mm -hmm. and I think some of that discussion reflects uh, it reflects a, a broad range of views. Some of that discussion reflects a, a view that maybe borrowing shouldn't happen. I, I don't really want to address that because I, I think that borrowing is an important key aspect of ma what makes us human. What, what, and yeah, I you think and I agree celebrate. here. I mean, that's, I'm we, glad we should you celebrate and I agree borrowing. this far. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, totally so, agree, so, obviously. So I think in some context, borrowing can. Um, and this is a key area because we're talking about gray area. In some, sometimes, in some places, acts of borrowing can look like appropriation. And that, I think, is a matter of context. It can be a matter of um, 
when, um, and it's often related to power dynamics. For instance, if I'm a member of a group that's always borrowed from, but I can't, if you look at the 19th century, if you look at a lot of African-American musicians in the 19th and early 20th, 20th century, there were a lot of borrowings from African-American culture, but laws, for instance, blocked a lot of African-Americans from even appearing um, in, because of segregation and other legal uh, regimes, African Americans had limited performance opportunities. Mm -hmm. That that th those are the kinds of contexts we have to look at the context of borrowing to determine whether they're appropriation. I don't think we can say borrowing there was a borrowing, therefore it was appropriation. So, I think, so can I stop you there for one second? Yeah, because sure. I, I think that example is an interesting example. So if you're talking about jazz culture, for example, obviously there's there's the, you're exactly right, of course, that there are many laws that prevented jazz musicians from playing in particular places in the South, uh, and there were a lot of white musicians who who used jazz. As, as their method of, of music as well. The, the question for me is, is it appropriation if they aren't the ones who created the law? In other words, you have a white musician who likes jazz, uses the jazz, but they're not the ones who are promulgating the, the law that prevents black people from performing. They just like jazz because jazz is fantastic. But they may take advantage of those laws. And let me talk about a couple different contexts. For instance, to, um, this is a great time to be talking about this because we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the first widely disseminated jazz recording by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. And it's a really interesting case that I'm going to talk about in my book. But the thing I want to highlight is that they actually claim to have invented jazz. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that, that is the kind of thing that I think we need to think about when we think about appropriation. Because clearly, they said basically we invented jazz. This jazz has nothing to do with African-American culture or right, music. Which is silly, yeah. And, and, which is silly, but, but it's, it sounds silly looking 100 years back. But we have that's not the only instance where people have sort of made claims right, of so that I agree sort. With you. So here, I mean, so, I, think, I, th I agree with you. So I want to take it to a more modern context just because yeah. I, I agree with you, obviously, that if you are literally stealing somebody else's intellectual property or somebody else's birthright and saying, this is mine, then of course that's cultural appropriation. But I'm not seeing a lot of that. Can we take it to a modern context? Because I'd like an example of something that's happening today where you think this is clearly cultural appropriation. It's, it's easier, I think, also to point to examples from the past where there was literal discrimination written into law and then say, okay, somebody's taking advantage of the ban on black people in order to claim property rights in something they clearly don't have property rights in, intellectual property rights. Can you give me an example now? Because obviously when people talk cultural appropriation now, they're talking about things like a white girl wears braids, right? A, a, the, the, a white girl has an afro. Like you see on college campuses, you see this happen all the time, that where somebody does their hair in a way that somebody else thinks they're wearing beads in their hair. And they think, oh, well, that, that's cultural appropriation. Is this something that you're worried about? Or is this something where you think, who cares? Well, I, I think that it, even if I may not care, I think some people do care about that. So what I argue right, is, is that we need to. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I think I think what we should do. Some of this needs to lead to a discussion, right? Because I think even though we can say these things happened in the past, the past shapes the present, right? So people that experience those kinds of things in the past look at things that they perceive as being similar in the present and say, "Wait a minute, this is something that's happened many times in the past. I don't want it to continue to happen." So I think what I what I argue is that we should be sensitive to our uses. What, for instance, I'm a singer, so when I'm singing things that come from a cultural background that I don't know anything about. I try to find out a little bit about it. So I think it doesn't require that we do a lot of cultural ex excavation, but I think we should be thoughtful and mindful of past in our present uses and think about, especially from groups that have, where, that have been historically targets of cultural appropriation. I think when they see, when they see people taking things that they think are from their culture, I think it, it, it raises perhaps alarm bells. And perhaps there's an overreaction in some instances. I'm not a big fan. I don't think I don't think braids are reserved for one culture, um, but I think it's important to have a conversation when these kinds of incidents happen. Can I think have today, that conversation be that people need to lighten up a little bit? 
Like, is that well, okay? I think, because- it's, I, think it's, I think in some instances, yes. But, it's, it, you know, it's hard when, you're, when you sort of feel like um, I've been a member of a group that historically has, where things have been taken from, where there hasn't been compensation, there hasn't been acknowledgement. I think there's perhaps an oversensitivity to takings in some instances. Now, sometimes it's not oversensitivity. I mean, I think when we look at commercial context of African-American music, until very, very recently, some of the patterns we saw 100 years ago with the original da- Dixieland Jazz Band, even though we don't have overt, segre- we don't have formal segregation, in the United States. Nonetheless, we have, a, we have a fairly segregated social environment. And there may be, I mean, anyone can take advantage. I mean, it, it, we don't necessarily all have access to the same opportunities. And I think that's part of what this is all about. But, but, but it does make a difference whether we're talking about access to the same legal opportunities or access to the same market. So, for example, there are a bunch of white rappers, right? There's people like Eminem. Mm-hmm. And rap is historically a part of black culture. And you have people like Eminem who come along, and there are people who see that as cultural appropriation. How dare he appropriate a certain type of music, even though the vast majority of the rap audience is actually young white people. The vast majority of people who actually listen to, to rap are white. They're not black. But that's not, but I guess that's not the question I would ask. The question I would ask is, would a similarly talented African-American musician have the same opportunities? And that's the question. I'm not sure that that's Eminem's fault or how that's cultural appropriation. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that, I'm not saying that's his fault. And actually, we've veered off cultural appropriation a mm-hmm. little bit to thinking about, my book is actually about creating markets. I think one of the things we've seen historically that goes back to the original Dixieland Jazz Band is a desire to sort of, African-American music has been a key source of musical innovation, not only in the United States, but globally. And today, you, and it's really an interesting transition if you look just after slavery, the a racial environment in the United States in the late 19th century was fairly oppressive. Nonetheless, you had a lot of African-American musicians that um, and, and white musicians who, who, who were influenced by African-American right. music who actually changed our musical ears. Because when you hear the earliest people hearing this music, um, the earliest collections of slave songs, they sort of say, we've never heard anything like this. This sounds so unique and mm-hmm. innovative. And that innovation, innovative spirit has shaped popular culture in the United States, certainly in the musical arena. And and even the globe. So when I go overseas, be it in Europe or Asia, For I sure. hear music influenced by African-American music. So that's really important. But you have seen historical patterns where going back to cover recordings, going back to the original Dixieland Jazz Band, where there's been a desire to use African-American culture, but maybe take out the African-Americans. Well, I mean, I think and that I think reflects, the, again, and, that, and that's a problematic element. Well, again, I think that the, when I keep making the legal distinction, because I think that one of the other things that's important to note here is that cultural appropriation, you know, people who have have expanded the audience for black art in many ways by making it a whole new audience making that art accessible to people has actually expanded the audience in many ways. So as I said, to take rap as an example, a lot of the people who used to listen to rap, the majority of people who used to listen to rap were black. Now the majority of people who listen to rap are white. And that's, I don't think that's even close to solely because of Eminem, but the more people you have who are who are of different races who are rapping, the more you are integrating different audiences into, into a cultural, into a new cultural sensibility. No, and I don't disagree with that, but I, I think what, what, my, what I focus on my, in my research is thinking a bit about what factors, uh, for instance, if you look at um, recording industry marketing practices during the 20th century, was to basically create separate markets for African-American and white music mm-hmm. going back to the blues days. Now, we know there was a considerable, considerable inter, interracial mixture in playing prior to the recording industry. If you look at the fiddle tradition, and if you look at, it, 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 so so there used to be black hillbillies, for instance, right. which is a really interesting. So, and, that, and a lot of that sort of integrated history of music playing was stopped by the recording industry because they decided that hillbilly music was white blues music was black. Mm-hmm. And they, they basically said, well, if you're a black uh, musician, you have to play blues because that's authentic black music. Hillbilly well, music isn't authentic. Right. So sometimes recording industry practices can contribute to denial well, of think, opportunity. I think, I think, I think that's, that's important. I'm sorry I have to break here, but I think a lot of that is, is really interesting. And uh, I think that 
you know, if, if I have one takeaway, we may disagree about this. If I have one takeaway, it's that we should restrict our worries about cultural appropriation to areas where actual intellectual property is being stolen uh, and used by people without reference to its original source, not to cases where people are actually paying homage to other cultures by integrating their, their aspects that they enjoy into those cultures. And I think that we've, we've crossed that line in many ways in American society, particularly on college campuses, where you see a lot of students who are protesting a lot of this stuff. Um, but what, where's the, what's, your, what's the name of your book and where's the best place people can find your stuff? Well, it's, it's still, I'm still writing it. Hopefully it'll be out next year. The, um, the title of the book is Creating Global Markets for African-American uh, Culture, Curation, Music, and Law. Okay, well, terrific. I really appreciate your time, and I'm going to try and get this correct one more time to get your name exactly <laughs> correct. Olufumileo Arewa. Very good. Okay, thank perfect. You. Okay, been, thank you. Pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you for joining the Ben Shapiro Show. Thanks for your time. Okay, so meanwhile, you know, back to sort of our government story, I want to talk a little bit about the looming government shutdown. So the Trump administration is now very much afraid of a government shutdown. They think the Democrats are going to shut down the government by failing to pass a budget. Mick Mulvaney, who is the head of the Office of Management and Budget, and a guy who was not averse to government shutdowns about five seconds ago, uh, he says that we don't want a government shutdown. President Trump uh, has talked about a number of items he'd like to see uh, in this government funding bill, which are so important that he's willing to see the government shut down if he doesn't get them. I don't think anybody's trying to get to a shutdown. Shutdown is not a desired end. It's not a tool. It's not something that we want to have. We want our priorities funded. And one of the biggest priorities during the campaign was border security, keeping Americans safe. And part of that was a border wall. And we still don't understand why the Democrats are so wholeheartedly against it. They voted for it in 2006. Uh, then Senator Obama voted for it. Senator Schumer voted for it. Senator Clinton voted for it. So we don't understand why Democrats are now playing politics just because Donald Trump is in office. Okay, so Chris Wallace then follows this up and he says, a government shutdown would be a disaster for Trump on day 100. Uh, here's Chris Wallace on Fox News. Uh, you, you had the Trump tweet where he said, you know, this ridiculous standard of 100 days, and I know some of the media is going to, quote, kill me. If it's so ridiculous, why is he racing so hard to try to get all this stuff jammed into this week? There's really only one thing that has to be done this next week, and that is to keep the government running. And let me tell you, that's awfully important, not just for the obvious reasons, but because you have a completely Republican government, a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican president. If you get a government shutdown a week from today, on the hundredth day of the Trump presidency, that's a disaster. So. You have to ask, why would you risk anything to allow that to happen? Okay, a disaster for whom? Again, this is one of the things that's so maddening about how Republicans govern, and this is why Trump's first 100 days are an indicator as to how he's going to go, although we don't yet have enough information. If Trump is not willing to stand by his spending priorities and force Democrats to embrace his spending priorities when he has a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate, when can Republicans ever expect to push a real conservative agenda at any point? I was told that when Republicans shut down the government under Barack Obama, because Barack Obama refused to sign into law any law that defunded Obamacare, I was told that that would damage Republicans. And yet now Trump is president, and when Democrats threaten to shut down the government, I'm told that it's going to damage Trump. It's amazing how this works. Anytime the the Republicans campaign on we want less government, and anytime there's less government, we're told it's going to damage Republicans. Maybe Republicans should just become Democrats. If that's the way this works, if every time the government shuts down, we're all going to panic and freak out, if every time Republicans cut government, we're told that Republicans are going to lose votes, maybe Republicans should just convert, become Democrats, and then they can argue inside the Democratic Party about marginal issues that don't matter. It's really, really maddening. 
Bottom line is Trump's got to stand up and he's got to start pushing an agenda. He's the president. He's got the bully pulpit. Why doesn't he use it for something useful as opposed to going around and just sort of rallying support to things that he has no apparent intention of doing anytime soon? Okay, before I get to things I like, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Stamps.com. So if you are sick of waiting in line at the post office because it takes too long, then you need to go to Stamps.com right now and sign up. Use that Promo code Shapiro in the microphone or search bar. Four-week trial with postage and digital scale. You can check it out, stamps.com. Shapiro in the microphone search bar and it doesn't close like the post office so you can always get your postage and uh, I've used stamps.com for my mail we use it here at the office for our mail right now if you go there and you use that promo code Shapiro you get that four week trial with postage and digital scale so that's an awful lot of postage plus you get the ability to weigh your mail so you always have the correct amount of, of mailing postage on there you print the stamps out directly the postage directly out onto the envelope directly onto a letterhead uh, and then paste it onto your envelope it saves tons and tons of time. You don't have to worry about getting stamps anymore, weighing things down at the post office. Terrific service. Stamps.com. Enter promo code Shapiro. You never have to go to the post office again. Okay, time for some things I like, and then we'll do some things I hate. So, things I like. I'm going to do music from great composers that you might not have heard, um, but that I really like. So, if you're relatively literate, you've probably heard this, but if you're not you know, a big Beethoven fan, you've only heard his symphonies, uh, then this is, is a really dramatic piece of music. It's, Be- it's Beethoven's Egmont Overture. Uh, it used to, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this was originally one of the overtures to Fidelio, uh, and it was renamed, basically. Uh, he wrote it between, apparently, October 1809 and June 1810, and uh, it, is, it is really just great. It's, it's really... Um, uh, I enjoy it a lot. I'm wrong about Fidelio. Ignore that. But it's a great piece of music. Here is a, a little bit of the Egmont Overture. play the whole thing, obviously. So basically, he wrote this right after he wrote the Eroica. The Eroica was his third symphony, uh, and uh, he famously dedicated the Eroica to Napoleon. And then, after Napoleon declared himself emperor, then Beethoven scratched out the dedication to Napoleon uh, and wrote into the memory of a great man, because he was so angry with Napoleon for having overthrown democracy. Uh, The Egmont Overture was written for a play, I guess it was by Goethe, about uh, somebody who sort of rebelled against Napoleon's rule. Uh, and so it's, it's a great piece of music, really, really dramatic. Uh, so you can check that out, the Egmont Overture. Okay, other things that I like. So the uh, NBA playoffs are going on. This had to be staged, but I love it anyway. So apparently they had the, a Clippers fan and a Utah Jazz fan race around in these bubbles at, during halftime. Uh, and you'll see, things sort of went wrong. You see the adult Clippers fan, and he just knocks over this kid. And then here comes the mascot. <laughs> The Utah Jazz mascot and just plows the the Clippers fan. It's got to be staged, right, guys? There's no way that's real. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny anyway. 
Um, but anytime somebody uh, knocks down a kid and then gets plowed over, I'm, I'm in favor of it. So whether it's fake or real, <laughs> pretty funny stuff. So uh, I can enjoy it. Come on, it's all right. Okay, fine. Time for some things I hate. So Berkeley is still attempting to shut down Ann Coulter. They tried to shift her speech to May 2nd. That is after the school year ends, of course. Uh, and now this has become sort of a flashpoint for people who want to go and make a big stink at Berkeley. Uh, so I know that uh, Milo Yiannopoulos is going to try and make his big comeback at Berkeley. Uh, so she, Ann Coulter is, is still going to try and go speak there, I guess. Or I guess they, they may file a lawsuit against the, the people at Berkeley. I don't know if she's actually going to follow through on speaking there. I think that the idea was that she was going to try to. So we'll see what happens later this week. Even the left is beginning to understand how in insane these Antifa people are uh, and how insane the, the broader left is for attempting to stop Ann Coulter from speaking. Here is, here is Bernie Sanders saying the right thing. I hate this just because now I have to agree with Bernie Sanders. What has this world come to? It's, oh, it's a statement. He said that uh, Ann Coulter has a right to speak, um, but uh, Bill Maher said the same thing. So here's Bill Maher. That's different. Okay. But uh, she was, I was uh, the speaker uh, at Berkeley a couple of years ago and they disinvited me and then they got their act together and I wound up doing it. And apparently that's what's going to happen with her, I think. But Berkeley, you know, used to be the cradle of free speech and now it's just the cradle for fucking babies. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I feel like, you know, this goes on all over the country on campuses. They invite someone to speak who's not exactly what liberals want to hear and they want to shut her. I feel like this is the liberals version of book book burning yeah and it's got to stop howard dean tweeted today about this hate speech is not protected by the first amendment yes it is <laughs> threats are not protected by the first amendment this is why the supreme court said the nazis could march in skokie they're a hateful bunch but that's what the first amendment means it doesn't mean just shut up and agree with me Good for Bill Maher. This is one area where Maher is really consistent and good for him. Uh, I just hate that the, the I hate that the left has become so radical that people like Howard Dean are saying the th- sorts of things they're saying. He quoted a case called Chaplinsky to the idea, a 1942 case, uh, to the idea that 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 hate speech is not protected. That case was about a guy who uh, called someone a damned fascist, and then the guy punched him, and they said that that wasn't protected speech. Chaplinsky has basically been overruled, if not explicitly, then, then implicitly by a bunch of other cases. Um, but in that case, he specifically insulted a guy directly to his face. So even that doesn't apply here, but the left is just over its skis when it comes to free speech. They don't like free speech very much. Okay, other things that I hate. So in the French election, uh, it's, it's now Marine Le Pen in the, in the final. She's going to, it was basically a runoff situation. There are four candidates. All of them were about 20%. The people who ended up winning, there was a guy named Macron, who's sort of a... a capitalist lefty, and he's sort of a social democrat lefty, uh, and then Marine Le Pen, who is a big government uh, European far-right leader. And Marine Le Pen uh, is uh, is attacking globalism. She ends up in the runoff against Macron, who's expected to win. He's up by 25 points or so. Uh, here she is talking about why this is now a battle between nationalism and globalism. I'm sure absolutely every French person has been aware of the fact that the system tried through every possible mean to stifle the big political debate that election should have been. But that big debate is going to take place at long last. So the thing that I hate... The, the thing that I hate is Europe. <laughs> and, and when I say I hate Europe, I don't mean that I, I hate Europe as a whole. What I do hate is that European politics is basically split between international socialists like Macron or Hollande. And they're not the same person, but Macron and Hollande both believe that the EU should rule from above. They should issue regulations. We should get rid of national borders and national character. And then you have people like Marine Le Pen, who's in favor of nationalism, but she wants a big government nationalism that, quote unquote, takes care of all of its citizens, but shuts all of its borders. Okay, I'm fine with the idea that you want to preserve your 
dominant culture by preventing people who are not going to assimilate from entering the country. I'm fine with that general concept. That I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with the idea that that has to be combined with this big government redistributionism, which is what Le Pen is for. The United States has a very different brand of conservatism. It says, basically, if you are willing to assimilate, just like Le Pen would say, if you're willing to assimilate, you can come on in. Although Le Pen, Le Pen actually says, even if you're willing to assimilate, we may not let you in. But American conservatism says, if you are willing to assimilate to our style of life and thought, you are welcome to come in. We also then add that you have to believe in small government and individual liberty. That is something that none of these parties ever discuss. Small government and individual liberty are foreign to the European system. That's why when people say Le Pen is our Trump or Trump is our Le Pen, that's not a good thing. Okay, the United States should not be a battle between Le Pen and Macron. The United States should be a battle between the founding ideology and everybody else. And right now, there are very few people who seem to represent that anymore. Okay, well, we will be back here tomorrow. Uh, President Trump's supposed to make some big statements about taxes, I believe. So we'll discuss all of that. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.